0: Way back, about 500 years ago, there was a, a map maker and he was commissioned to draw out the coastlines of North America. And so you can imagine trying to draw a map like 500 years ago, you don't have Google Earth, you don't have helicopters, you don't have GPS, you don't have all those modern instruments that one might use today. So he, he's trying to draw out this map of the coastline of waters of North America, both the the sea and also the inland lakes. And of course, he he doesn't see most of it. So he did what many map makers in ancient times would do, uh, either through pictures or words. So he would just write into the areas of the map that have been unexplored, here be dragons, or here be fiery scorpions, or here be giants, And and that just kind of meant, like, that's not a great place to go. We haven't explored it. It's kind of a scary place. You don't know what you're going to run into. Now, 300 years later, that map wound up in the hands of a British explorer by the name of Sir John Franklin. And this guy loved the Lord. He was a Christian. And so he, he kind of took that map, and he scratched out those archaic sayings, and he wrote in, here be God. And, of course, that demonstrated his trust in God, even in the midst of the unknown, here be God. Now, in your life and my life, we all, we're much more alike than we are different. And we all experience times where we are confused. We're not sure where God is taking us. We're not sure what's going to happen next. We're not sure how long our lives are going to last when maybe a relationship that's gone sour will be restored. Maybe we are experiencing spiritual attack and we're kind of wondering, like, I wish I, I, wish I could kind of figure out or wish God would reveal to me when this is going to go away. So like with the ancient map maker, our lives, when we look to the future, can be a little unsettling. Like, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm on this journey of life trying to map it out so to speak but i don't i don't know what's going to happen next and that can be a little disconcerting so we have a book in our bible called revelation and what revelation does is in broad strokes it tells us what's going to happen in the future therefore its message is about the future but it also helps us to cope with and flourish in the midst of challenges in the here and now. Does that make sense to you? So it's a message about the future, but it's not just a lesson in apocalyptic events. It is God's map of what is yet to come. And when we enter into it and we allow God to speak truth into our lives, and by the way, interestingly, it has its own dragons and giant angels and fiery beasts in it. But in this message, we discover, for those of you that already know the Lord, really, it's more of a reminder that God will vindicate himself. And God will also vindicate you as one of his followers. And these are more than preachable words. This is the essence of abundant life in the here and now. You lock this down. God will vindicate himself and God will vindicate you. And I can guarantee you this, you'll be far less concerned about the what-ifs and the what-nexts. And you will be able to find in the here and now peace that surpasses human understanding through the revelation of God's word. This is what we're gonna experience today as we enter into chapters 19 and 20 of Revelation. It's really a series of scenes. There's a lot of content here. We're gonna kind of move pretty quick. But um, the first thing that we experience in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, is the return of the king. Remember the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come. We're calling Lord like, we know you're the king, but it'd be kind of nice for you to show it. It'd be kind of nice for your reign to be made evident in this very brutal and broken world. And here we have it, the return of the king. And with the return of the king, guess what we're offered? Power. Those that love the Lord, the saints of God, are offered power. It says in verse 11, Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. These are words that depict Jesus. Faithful and true. And in righteousness, look at the next words, He judges and He makes war. Who? Who? Jesus? I thought Jesus was small in stature, kind of weak and passive, has a squeaky voice and wispy hair, super, super nice. But I never conceived of Jesus as a conquering king who judges and makes war, but that is the Jesus of the scripture. Here's Jesus for you. Jesus loves you. And he will kill you if you disobey him. That's the Jesus of scripture. Jesus will take the broken and put them back together, or those that think they're together, he will crush them to dust. That's the Jesus of Christianity. And that's the Jesus that we experience here. Now, unlike the evil rider, several chapters ago we met an evil rider on a white horse, he was a fake. The devil, the antichrist, the false prophet, the first beast, the second beast, all of them come into the world of the future and they present themselves as righteous. They want you to follow them. They want you to like them. They want you to bow your knee to them. And so in order to get you doing that, they dupe you into thinking there's some certain sense of righteousness about them, but they're fakes and they're frauds. But this is the real deal. As Jesus returns on a white horse, which symbolizes purity, white, power, he has an army behind him, and majesty, he's riding a war horse. This isn't a passive Jesus. In fact, the the battle that he engages in really isn't even a battle. It's more like just a verdict. Look at verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, meaning many crowns of royalty. He wears the crown of Canada, the crown of the United States, the crown of Belgium, the crown of Mozambique, the crown of Korea, the crown of India. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. All of the kingdoms of the world are actually ruled by one supreme king. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now this could be the blood of martyrs, it could be, it could be the blood of his enemies, it could be the blood that he shed for our salvation. There's debate on that, that it could be any of those things. And then we are told, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. So this takes your mind back to John 1, where Jesus is presented as the eternal word of God. So in God's essence, we speak of God as having an essence. He's real. There are three persons that are manifested. Those persons are distinct, but they're in one essence. And we have the Father, we have the eternal Son, and the eternal Holy Spirit. And the Son speaks truth. In fact, the Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that the Son spoke the world into existence. The Father didn't speak the world into existence. The Spirit didn't speak the world into existence. The eternal Son is God's creative agent. And He speaks the world into existence. So He's known as the eternal Word of God. And here it is that Word which was nailed to a cross and thought to be defeated, tossed into a borrowed tomb, who's now coming back to defeat death and Hades itself. And behind him, verse 14 says, in the armies of heaven who are pure, how do we know that? They are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. The Bible says the word of God is a, two-edged sword that has a capacity to penetrate the marrow of your skeleton. This is him with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. What I think is pretty awesome about that is God strikes down his enemies. He doesn't need a sickle. He doesn't need a sword. He doesn't need a machine gun. He doesn't need a jet fighter. He strikes down the world with his words. He creates out of nothing with his words let it be let it be it was so he makes with his words and he destroys with his words i can't do that i could hurt your feelings with my words i could encourage your spirit with my words but i can't create with my words but the eternal son creates and here he destroys with his words he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god the almighty And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So previously, nobody knew his name. Now, as he comes and he descends into the midst of this demonic world, he reveals his name. He's the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords. What's interesting about this is that in ancient times, especially the first century readers, might be lost a little bit to the Western ear, but the first century readers would have understood that... To call yourself the king of kings and the lord of lords is quite a dramatic statement. Even 2,000 years before Christ, the Mesopotamian kings, in all of their grandeur and their pomp, the ones that were building the big ziggurats, the the, the many towers of Babel, they they were calling themselves this, or the king of kings and the lord of lords. This was like common language for a pompous, arrogant jerk who as a created being was trying to claim rulership over the known world. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. I'm the King of Kings and I'm the Lord of Lords. So here Jesus declares this, and by doing so he is making a declaration of power, majesty, and therefore ownership over all things. And then we have these riders that are following him and these riders are probably resurrected or raptured saints, since angels are not typically depicted in scripture as victorious riders. Probably resurrected or raptured saints. Now, why does God reveal his name to humanity prior to destroying evil and redeeming the righteous? Again, we gotta translate this with our Western ears and mindsets, because we don't think this way. But many people groups from the past had the notion that if a deity, a god or the gods, told you their name, you would then have access to their power. This is why even in the first century when Christ is speaking, they talk about the powerful name of Jesus. You're like, oh, is it like the letters? If you throw certain letters together, is there power in that? No, because a name represents the essence of someone. This is why when we have babies, we're like, what's the child's name? Like, really, why do we care? Because there's something about the name that is, is it's like I'm revealing to you the essence of this person. And so we call each other by our names. And there's something special about someone remembering our names. Why? It's just a word. It's just a sound. Because it characterizes the essence of who we are. And Jesus here reveals his name, previously undisclosed, to the people of God. And what does that mean? It means he is giving you, as his followers, access to the power that he has. So we've talked about the fact he's majestic. He's a ruler, and he has ownership over you. And by coming on this horse and revealing his name, he's like, I'm giving you access to the power, to the victory, to the might, and to a portion of the majesty, in fact, that is mine. Kind of like being a lamp, we're like a lamp. So you got a lamp, you got the base, the stem, the light bulb, the switch, maybe a little cover on it, and then you got a plug or a cord. Well, that will do a grand total of nothing unless you have what? A receptacle, a power source. When you plug it into the power source, the power comes from without into the lamp and the lamp lights up and functions as a lamp should. The Christian life is nothing without the power of Christ feeding it. Other religions are like, hey, you know what? If you just tell yourself you're a lamp enough, you'll lighten up the world or the powers within you or the powers in liturgy, whatever it might be we're like, no, we're, we're empty vessels, we're clay pots, we're cracked pots without Jesus. So we plug into the power who is Jesus and it's his power that flows through us. Think of yourself as a conduit of grace, of mercy, of love, it doesn't come from you. It comes from without and from beyond you. But as you plug into Jesus, all of a sudden things start happening in your life that normally wouldn't happen. So Jesus gives us access to that by revealing to us his name, meaning his power. So the future looks bright now because there's justice, there's vindication on the horizons, on the horizon. We are not followers of some feeble, weak, wimpy, decrepit, mild, knobby kneed God. We serve a Christ who loves and who crushes at the same time. So takeaways, get rid of the fear of the devil. You don't need to fear him, watch for him. He is wily and he is a schemer, but you need not fear him. Jesus versus the devil. Baby Chihuahua versus trained Great Dane. Jesus is the Great Dane, we will just give the devil a lot more than he deserves. He's the baby chihuahua. He has no power over Jesus. He is bold. He is courageous. He is righteous. He is unswayed. And so be like him, be like him. Christianity is not a passive spectator sport. Don't let the world force you into their idea of ideal Christianity. Oh, you are the people that say nothing, do nothing, you're just kind of sentimentalists you've checked your brain at the door you're not thinking people people no that's not christianity the early church was bold it was courageous the martyrs of the future will be bold they will be courageous they will be truth tellers they will take a stand for jesus christ at all costs and so we learn from jesus So by returning, Jesus is kind of taking that map of life and he's saying, yeah, I know you don't know the future, but I can tell you this, God is here. There's no unknowns to God. There's no dragons, there's no scorpions, there's no fiery pits. In my mind, they are owned by me. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns your life, he owns your present, he owns your future. And so you can trust in him. After Jesus returns as the king, we have the arrest of our enemies. So chaos begins to crumble. Safety is restored. And as is typical in Revelation, when we're about to encounter something that God does, the angel comes in advance and he announces it. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Oh, all the birds? Like sparrows and red-winged blackbirds and swallows? I love those kind of little birds. They're so cute. We just had a little swallow nest at our house and the babies just took flight this week. They're cute. That's not the kind of birds the angel's calling. He's calling those um, vultures, those birds that eat flesh, and he's inviting them to a meal, a rather gory meal, I might add. It says, come gather for the great supper of God. Oh, is this like the second Supper of the Lamb, no, no, check this, this is a different supper. This is a supper you might not want to participate in. To eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This is an invitation to come and eat the dead from a battlefield that were killed by the words of God. And I saw the beast, also known as the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Like, how smart is it to take up arms against God? It's not smart. It's very dumb, actually. But during the tribulation, the Antichrist would be revealed. People would go, oh, he's our tough guy. He... He's our ruler. He's our leader, be it an individual or system. We want to be part of that. We want to be part of the new cool. We want to be part of the new awesome. We want to be part of the new thing. Well, that new thing, that new cool, that new awesome, here's what happens to them. You think, well, this is going to be quite the battle. It's going to be God versus foe, multiple campaigns, pushing forward, being pushed back, some gory scenes, flanking maneuvers, skirmishes off to the side. Nope. None of that. Here's how the battle goes. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had did signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. There's your battle scene. They just lose. They just lose. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. They got a really hefty meal that day. And not a literal sword, but God's word. He just spoke them into death. You're done. You're dead. It's finished. I've had enough of you. And they're gone. This is the power of the king that you serve. And it's the power of Jesus who lives within you. That's pretty awesome. This is a horrible picture of defeat where the beast is completely powerless against Christ. And why is that? Because he already lost on the cross at Calvary. God is permitting him in his sovereign will to go around and wage a little war, deceive, and try to get a lame-o following. But he's already been defeated on the cross. And so now we're Christians. I think Most of you are probably Christians. I hope all of you are. I doubt it. But I hope that all of you are. And I wonder how many more Christians would be much stronger if they just took what we've preached today so far and appropriated that into their lives. Thought about it more. Prayed it out. Preached it out. Sang it out. Thought about it. Because this world is filled with issues. And by the way, if you want to make a really good, anybody looking here for a really good job? Make a lot of money? Maybe looking for a career change? Okay, we got one. Anybody else? Career change? I got got a job opportunity for it. I can guarantee you're going to make a ton of money on it. Go start counseling and helping people who are depressed and anxious and stressed out. You'll make a killing. A killing. Really? In the first world where we have so much, yeah, in the first world where we have so much, there's hardly anybody in this room that's ever been to war. There's hardly anybody in this room that's ever starved. There's hardly anybody in this room that doesn't have at least a buck in the bank. We have transportation, we have a relatively safe country to live in, but people are depressed, they're anxious, they're stressed out, they're fearful. They're having breakdowns of every sort people are throwing meds at it, counseling, all kinds of therapies. I mean, there's so many different kinds of certifications for therapists and counselors and whatever else. I mean, you can't even keep up on it nowadays. Because there's a God-shaped void inside of you and no man, no woman, no job, no amount of money, no amount of security and safety can fill that because you know innately intuitively intrinsically that this world is not right you know that and you've experienced the pain and the anguish and the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations and when you reach for the wrong medication for the wrong solution you're just reaching into the air it doesn't satisfy it doesn't satisfy and this is what people continue to do and sadly some christians who say they believe in jesus live that way. Their lives are anxious and fearful. They're super concerned about the economy. Their their cages are rattled when they receive some sort of news from the the doctor, the dentist, the whoever. The things aren't right in their bodies. And it just breaks them down when relationships aren't right. When their dreams in the present are crushed, it destroys them but here we have these hope-filled words that we have ultimate victory through Jesus Christ. And this is, not, this is not just preachy stuff, folks. This is not just Sunday morning from 11.15 to 12.30. That's what we talk about, and then we re-enter the real world, and really the solutions here don't work there. That's not what this is. This is life. This is your opportunity to find freedom and hope and renewal and transformation, you know it innately as an image bearer of God that this world cannot satisfy and fill spiritual voids in your life, but God can. And He has, and He will through the conquering Lord Jesus Christ. And you tap into Him, you plug into Him, and you'll experience a measure of victory. So the devil loves to snarl, and hiss, and threaten, and seek to rob your joy. Apparently, there was a zoo, and in the zoo was a caged old bear, and he was snarling. It wasn't one of those bears that people really like to go see. He snarled, and he hissed, and he growled, and he carried on, and he'd sit upon his rock. And people were kind of afraid of him. But then the back gate opens, and the zookeeper comes in, and they're shocked. The zookeeper just walks right up to him and drops down his food and his water, and the old bear lumbers down and starts eating and drinking. It doesn't attack the zookeeper or anything, really. And one of the zookeepers... The zoo guest was like, how's that work? And the zookeeper said, it's a bag of hot air. He tried to attack an elephant years ago. The elephant broke his back and knocked out half his teeth. He growls, he hisses. He has no power in him. That's Satan. He growls, he hisses, he threatens, seeks to be tough. His teeth have been knocked out. His back's been broken. The Bible said, says his head was crushed on the cross, with the serpent's head. And we're all afraid of him? No, he's a loser. He was a loser when he rebelled against God. He was a loser at Calvary. He continues to be a loser, and he ultimately will lose. But we have Jesus on our side. And we have the winner living inside of us, So why fear him? The Bible calls us to stand up against him. Ephesians 6, why would it be there if Satan's not alive and well? We push back by donning the spiritual armor. But here's his fate. First chapter 20, verse one. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, which means God controls even hell itself, and a great chain... Now, can you just count with me? You guys can all count pretty high, I hope. Anybody here count past 100? Can you count to 1,000? Do you know how many angels are at God's command? The Bible says legions. I don't even remember how many a legion is, but it's a lot. We'll just say hundreds of thousands minimum. How many angels does God call to help him harness the devil? The chains there, they're going to capture the devil... How many angels... This is pretty tough, right? Devil's tough. I mean, he's deceiving the whole world. Like, do you think maybe 10,000 angels will cut it? Think maybe 100 elite angels will cut it, like Green Beret angels? How many angels will God need to harness the devil? We're going to find out. I saw Anne, pretty sure that's singular, angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain, and he, that's singular, seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. How many angels does it take to bind the devil? One. One angel. And we're worried (laughs) about God losing? We question God's power to control all things, God's sovereignty. Out of all of his legions, like, I need somebody to come and help take down the devil, a bunch of green birds. No, we don't. Just one. One's enough. One angel. Now, if it takes only one angel to defeat the devil, don't you think that says something about the power of God? And don't you think that should affect how you live? I think it should. After that, he must be released. Notice that is an act of God. He must be released, not he escapes, not he sneaks out, not he outwits his jailer. He must be released for a little while. Then we have the thousand-year millennial period. So the thousand-year millennial period, little timeline stuff here. Thousand-year millennial period takes place after the great seven-year tribulation. And Christ himself comes down to earth and he reigns on Jerusalem's throne. Now, some people, and we're respectful of this, some people believe this is a spiritual thousand years that we're in right now. So Augustine taught that. Many people have taught that over the years, that the thousand-year millennial reign is kind of an undefined period of time from Christ until whenever Christ comes back. And the tribulation is just the regular trials that we go through problem with that, again, we have Ephesians 6. If the devil is bound now, then why would we need to avail ourselves of the spiritual armor to fend off attacks from the spiritual realm, right? So the devil goes about as a roaring lion. We're not in the millennium now. The millennium is a period in the future. And uh, during that time, as God rules on earth and the devil is bound and his enemies have been defeated, there's essentially four things Four purposes, you might say, of the millennium. The first is this. It shows Christ's absolute rule in human history, in space and in time, on the actual planet that he created. Prior to the eternal kingdom, Christ will show his unequivocal rule on this globe. Secondly... It demonstrates, because there will still be people who sin during the millennium, maybe not to the degree that they do now, but there will still be people that sin, there will still be births and death. While sin is often from beyond, it's a result of satanic attack, we also have the capacity to sin even without satanic attack. And so it it demonstrates during the millennium the Innate, evil heart of humanity, even apart from the devil's influence. So just remember this. Sometimes you sin because the devil has attacked you. Other times you sin because you keep bad company. Mostly you sin because you're just you. Mostly the person that's responsible for my sin is me, myself, and I. And even in the absence of the devil and his binding, there's still not absolute perfection yet. Third, So that when this devil is briefly released at the the end of the millennium and tries once again to overcome God, God will finally show his unequivocal rule over all things. And then fourth, and very importantly, God made some very physical, tangible, like tasteable, touchable, hearable, seeable promises to Abraham and his descendants about an actual land, an actual city, that would be theirs in perpetuity. And so during the millennium, God's land promises, peace promises, wealth promises, and other tangible promises to the Jewish people will be received in full measure prior to entrance into the eternal kingdom. Safety will be restored and the world will enjoy a time of unparalleled peace on earth. So John's apocalypse gives us kind of a heads up on all of that. And that we will rule alongside Jesus. So moving further into the text, we encounter the reign of the saints. Where God's promises are fulfilled to the saints. During this period of time. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge is committed. So now we have a plurality of thrones. Not just one, but a plurality of thrones. Where God's people are seated and reigning with Christ. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, those would be martyrs, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I will not re-preach what I've already preached, but I'll just make mention of this for those of you that are joining us, maybe for the first time. The mark really has more to do with entering into the world system and participating in it. And those that have participated in the world system, bowed down to it, chained themselves essentially to it, they're not of God. This, by the way, is a warning to the people of God because it's so easy to become so tied to the economic, the social, the political systems of this world that all of a sudden we need to take a stand for Jesus and we feel like we can't. Because we're wed to it. So, principally centered living says we're in the world, but we're not of it. So you need to exercise some good old-fashioned discernment. And while you live in the world, and therefore there's some parameters to the systems that you live in and certain rules you got to keep, do a little house cleaning once in a while. Just kind of ask, like, Is, am, I, am I too tightly tied to the here and now? Is there any way I can maybe extricate myself from the entanglement of feeling so like, wed to the world. This is part of the ongoing Christian challenge of living life as exiles. This is Babylon. We're living life as exiles. And we need to do a really good job of assessing and discerning the degree to which we are under the auspices or control of this world. Nevertheless, martyrs are given a period of time to rejoice and rule over the earth. And then in verse five, the rest of of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So, this is likely saying that all believers will reign with Christ during the millennium, including you. Unbelievers will remain bodily in the grave, spiritually in hell, until the millennium is over. This is why the first resurrection is composed of those over whom the second death. Has no power. So God raises to life the saints of God. They reign with him in the millennial kingdom. Unbelievers stay dead. Bodies in the graves or in the sea. Souls and spirits in hell. Then it says, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, meaning the true believers. Over such, meaning true believers... The second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So what's your job description during the millennium? You'll be a priest of Christ. You'll be representing him. You'll be worshiping him. You'll be enjoying his presence. But unbelievers will not be in the millennium, except for those that are born during that period of time, and they will form new nations that will eventually conspire once again to try to take down God. So now we have verse 7. We're coming to the end of the thousand years. When the thousand years are ended. Satan is released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations. Like where these nations come from? Generations that have been born during the millennial kingdom. They will be deceived. He will gather them for the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. So to describe these national groups he reaches back into human history and he grabs two names from sister nations that were known for their despicable wickedness Gog and Magog and he calls this battle the Gog of battle of Gog and Magog he gathers them for battle there's a lot of them their number is like the sand of the sea and they march up and over the broad plain of the earth and they surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city that's Jerusalem it's like, okay, this is another battle. What's going to happen now? Last time God's like, you're dead. This time he doesn't even open his mouth. He just burns them up. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So a little, little theology lesson. A lot of times we're a little sloppy, Okay? In our theology, so we say, oh, where are believers going to spend eternity? In heaven. No, that's not true. Where are unbelievers going to spend eternity? Oh, in hell. No, that's not true. That's where believers and unbelievers go in the here and now. But in the future, hell will be thrown into the lake of fire. That is the eternal destiny of the unbeliever and the believer will not spend eternity in heaven but they will spend eternity on the new heavens and the new earth it'll be like eden 2.0 on steroids super awesome on and on and on and on that's the new heavens the new earth so you will not be a disembodied spirit plucking a harp sitting on a cloud with a halo on thank god for all of eternity god will take you back to eden but it'll be a new eden it'll be a perfect world Instead of a tree of life, there will be multiple trees of life. There will not be a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Won't be there. God will take us back to a place that is absolutely sinless and we will spend eternity enjoying what God originally designed for us to enjoy. So again, in this era, people who reject God's offer of eternal life go to hell and believers go to heaven. And so will the devil for a thousand years. He will go to hell. But after this, it'll be empty. It's like a waste paper basket. Hell will be like a waste paper basket. It just gets dumped into the lake of fire. And this reminds us again of the fact that God is here. God is here. Look at that dragon over there. Look at the devil. Look at all he's doing. Look at all he's accomplishing. It seems like the devil owns everything. No, God is still here. He just hasn't fully manifested his presence yet. So now we have the final battle. And with it, God's people will shout out, recreation, here we come. That's what we're looking forward to. Listen to this description of judgment and power. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, that is God. Now look how powerful he is. From his presence, earth, you can say that's big. Pretty big, okay? And what else do we have? And the sky, that's big. Okay, this is what happens. They fled away from God. Where are they going to hide? And no place was found for them. They couldn't get away from God. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Then another book was opened, which is a book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death in Hades, that is death... The enemy of God, the consequence of sin, and Hades, that is hell, where do they go? They give up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done, and then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into a lake of fire. There's two judgments spoken of in scripture. Here we have the great white throne judgment, which is a judgment for the wicked. So the wicked are judged. Death is judged. Hades is judged. And it's cast into the lake of fire for how long? Forever and ever. So don't let anybody tell you that eternal, tor- eternal uh, or or um, torment in hell is not eternal. That would be it. Would be nice if it was. It would be. I would actually prefer that. But God's holiness for temporal sin demands eternal punishment. Lock that one down. Gives you a little idea of how holy God actually is. The just punishment for temporary. Sin is eternal punishment. That's fair if you understand how holy God is. Now, that's the judgment for the wicked. But if you go back to 2 Corinthians 5.10, speaking to the church, initially the Corinthian church, there's a second judgment spoken of there. This is to believers. And it says in that passage, for we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, that each one will receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. This is not a judgment of damnation. This is a judgment of reward. So believers will actually be rewarded differently depending on the things they have done in the body, whether they be good or bad. So you're like, all I care about is just getting to heaven. You should care about a lot more than that. You should care about being the most outstanding, upstanding, righteous, godly Christian you can possibly be. One day God will reward you for that. But just to kind of take the selfish, well, I'd like some of that edge off, let me say this. When you receive your rewards from God, you will return them to the feet of Jesus Christ in worship. That requires an absolute vertical mindset that your life is about God's glory. It's not about what you get. But God will give to you so that he might receive from you. God does that in the here and now. Why do you have the spiritual gifts you have? So you can flaunt them? No. God gives you gifts and talents and opportunities, a wallet, a family, a marriage, friendships, talents, not so you can get and enjoy a little better life, but so that you can return them to Jesus Christ who has given them to you and receive glory. Like in what other world do you receive awards and then give them back to the person that gave them to you? Thanks for the money. Thanks for the plaque. Thanks for the trophy. Take them back. No, we want them on our wall, on our social media feeds, in our bank accounts. But the eternal rewards of heaven will be given back to God and that that requires a life that is just increasingly God fixated, fixated on God and his glory. In order to get there, even in part in the here and now, you have to have a high view of God. And probably with few exceptions, a lesser view of yourself. So that's the great white throne versus the Bema seat judgment. The book of life's part of this. It's kind of a strange, eerie scene. It does not teach us that works justify us. But we do know this, that if you go out in the foyer and we close up those doors and we turn off the sound and you're out there thinking, what's going on in there? You don't have to open the door to see what's going on in here. What do you got to do? Look through the window. You look through the glass and you can see what's going on in here. Windows are portals into other spaces. And your works, while they don't justify you, are portals into your heart attitude. So this is why when we listen to someone speak or we watch their actions, those are portals. Those are windows into the soul. And this is why good works matter to God. They matter to God. They demonstrate the reality, the degree to which you have appropriated, put into practice, the gifts of grace that God has given to you as one of his children. Verse 15 uses the word if. If anyone's name is not found written. This is not a hypothetical if. This is more like a, I assume there will be some whose names are not there. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. Some people teach that in the end, all will be saved. I would love for that to be true. It's just not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Hell and the eternal lake of fire will have a population sign out front. And it'll be a big number. I trust that, that won't be you, but that your name is written in the book of life because you've trusted in the Lord and you're bearing fruit. And then to the believer, the question for you is are you living in victory? You're not a loser. You're on the winning team. You needn't fear the future. You needn't fear the present. You're a conqueror through Christ. And you can charge out those doors and live in victory over sin, over the devil, over the flesh because of what Christ has done in you, waiting for the full and final installment of all of that when you stand before the kingdom, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he grants you the rewards that you have earned for your faithful followership, which you will then return to the one who ultimately earned your standing before God the Father. Be encouraged by these words.